Part One, Chapter Two of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. It was when they came down again, completely happy and pleased, that the servant incident occurred. Mabel was down the stairs slightly before him and turned a smiling face up to him as he descended. By Jove, it's jolly, he said. We'll be happy here and he kissed her. "'You'd better see the kitchen. It's awfully nice.' And they went along. At the kitchen door she paused and began in a serious whisper a long account of the servants. "'I think they'll turn out quite nice girls. They're sisters, you know, and they're glad to be in a place together. They've both got young men in the village. Fancy the cook told me that at Mrs. Wellington's where she was, at Chauvinsbury, she wasn't allowed to use soda for washing up because Mrs. Wellington fussed so frightly about the pattern on her china. Fancy in their family they've got eleven brothers and sisters. Isn't it awful how those kind of people— Her voice got lower and lower. She seemed to Mark to be quivering with some sort of repressed excitement, as though the two maids were in some rare exhibit which she had captured with a net and placed in the kitchen and whom it was rather thrilling to open the door upon and peep at. He could hardly hear her voice, and had to bend his head. It was dim in the lobby outside the kitchen door. The dimness, her intense whispers, and her excitement made him feel that he was in some mysterious conspiracy with her. The whole atmosphere of the house, and of this tour of inspection, which had been deliciously absorbing, became mysteriously conspiratorial and unpleasing. She's been to a school of cookery at Tidborough. She attended the whole course. Good. That's the stuff. Hush. Why hush? What a funny business this was. Mabel opened the kitchen door. The master's come to see how nice the kitchen looks. Two maids in black dresses and an extraordinary amount of stiffy, starched aprons and caps and streamers rose awkwardly, and bobbed awkward like little bows. One was very tall, the other rather short. The tall one looked extraordinarily severe, and the short one extraordinarily glum, Mark thought, to have young men. Mabel looked from the girls to Mark and from Mark to the girls, precisely as if she were exhibiting rare specimens to her husband, and her husband to her rare specimens, and in the tone of one exhibiting pinned, dried, and completely impersonal specimens, she announced, "'They're sisters.' Their name is Jinx. Mark, examining the exhibits, had been feeling like a fool. Their name humanized them and relieved his awkward feeling. Ha! Jinx, eh? High Jinx and low Jinx, what? He laughed. It struck him as rather comic that high Jinx and low Jinx tittered broadly, losing in the most astonishing way the one her severity and the other her glumness. Mabel seemed suddenly to have lost her interest in her exhibits and their cage. She rather hurried Mark through the kitchen premises, and moving into the garden, replied rather abstractedly to his plans for the garden's development. Suddenly she said, "'Mark, I do wish you hadn't said that in the kitchen.' He was mentally examining the possibilities of a makeshift racket cord against a corner of the stable and barn. "'Eh? What in the kitchen, dear?' That about high jinks and low jinks. Mabel, I swear we could fix up a topping sort of squash rackets in that corner. Those cobbles are worn absolutely smooth. 
I wish you'd listen to me, Mark. He caught his arm around her and gave her a playful squeeze. Sorry, old girl. What was it? About high jinks and low jinks? Ah, dashed funny that, don't you think? No, I don't. I don't think it's a bit funny. Her tone was such that, relaxing his arm, he turned and gazed at her. Don't you? Don't you really? No, I don't. Far from funny. Some instinct told him he ought not to laugh, but he couldn't help it. The idea appealed to him as distinctly and clearly comic. Well, but it is funny, don't you see? Hijinks alone is a, such a funny expression. Sort of, well, you know what I mean, apart altogether from low jinks. And he laughed again. Mabel compressed her lips. I simply don't. Rebecca is not a bit like hijinks. He burst out laughing. No, I'm dashed if she is. That's just it. I really do not see it. Go on, Mabel. Of course you do. You make it funnier. Hijinks and low jinks? I shall call them that. Mark. She spoke the word severely and paused severely. Mark. I do most earnestly hope you'll do nothing of the kind. He stared puzzled. He had tried to explain the absurd thing, and she simply could not see it. I simply don't. And again that vague transient discomfort shot through him. Sabre awoke in the course of that night and lay awake. The absurd incident came immediately into his mind and remained in his mind. High jinks and low jinks was comic. No getting over it. Incontestably comic. Stupid, of course, but just the kind of stupid thing that tickled him irresistibly. And she couldn't see it. Absolutely could not see it. But if she were never going to see any of these stupid little things that appealed to him? And then he wrinkled his brows. You remember how he used to wrinkle up his old nut, as the garrulous Hapgood had said. A nightlight, her wish, dimly illumined the room. He raised himself and looked at her fondly, sleeping beside him. He thought, Dashed it, the thing's been just the same from her point of view, that den business. She likes den and I can't stick den. Just the same for her as for me that high jinks and low jinks tickles me and it doesn't tickle her. He very gently moved with his finger a tress of her hair that had fallen upon her face. Mabel, his wife. How gently beneath her filmy bedgown her bosom rose and fell. How utterly calm her face was. How at peace. How secure she lay there. He thought, three weeks ago she was sleeping in the terrific privacy of her own room, and here she has come to mine, cut off from everything and everybody, and came here to me. An inexpressible tenderness filled him. He had a sudden sense of the poignant and tremendous adventure on which they were embarked together. They had been two lives, and now they were one life, altering completely the lives they would have led singly. A new sea, a new ship on a strange sea. What lay before them? She stirred. His thoughts continued. One life. One life out of two lives. One nature out of two natures. Mysterious and extraordinary metamorphosis. She had brought her nature to his, and he his nature to hers, and they were to mingle and become one nature. Absurdly and inappropriately his mind picked up and presented to him 
the grotesque words, high jinks and low jinks. A note of laughter was irresistibly tickled out of him. She said very sleepily, Mark, are you laughing? What are you laughing at? He patted her on her shoulder. Oh, nothing. In the fifth year of their married life, thoughts of her and of the poignant and tremendous adventure on which they were embarked together were no longer possible while she lay in bed beside him. They had come to occupy separate rooms. In the fifth year of their married life, measles visited Penny Green. Mabel caught it. Their bedroom was naturally the sick room. Sabre went to sleep in another room, and the arrangement prevailed. Nothing was said between them on the matter, one way or the other. They naturally occupied different rooms during her illness. She recovered. They continued to occupy different rooms. It was the most natural business in the world. The sole reference to recognition of permanency in this development of relations between them was made when Sabre, on the first Saturday afternoon after Mabel's recovery, he did not go to his office at Tidborough on Saturdays, carried out his idea, conceived during her sickness, of making the bedroom into which he had moved serve as his study also. He never got rid of his distaste for his den. He had never felt quite comfortable there. At lunch on this Saturday, I'll tell you what I'm going to do this afternoon, he said. I'm going to move my books up into my room. He had been a little afraid the den business would be reopened by this intention, but Mabel's only reply was, You better have the maids help you. Yes, I'll get them. No, I'll give the order if you don't mind. Right. And in the afternoon the books were moved. The den raped of them. His bedroom awarded them. High jinks and low jinks rather enjoyed it, passing up and down the stairs with continuous smirks at this new manifestation of the master's ways. The bookshelves proved rather a business. There were four of them, narrow and high. We'll carry these long ways, Sabre directed when the first one was tackled. I'll shove it over. You two take the top and I'll carry the foot. In this order they struggled up the stairs, high jinks and low jinks backwards, and the smirks enlarged to panting giggles. Halfway up came a loud crack. "'What the devil was that?' said Sabre, sweating and gasping. "'I think it's the back of my dress, sir.' "'Good Lord! You know, Lo, you're practically sitting on the dashed thing. You've twisted yourself around in some extraordinary way.' Agonizing giggles. Mabel appeared in the hall beneath. "'Raise it up, Rebecca. Raise it, Sarah. How can you expect to move, stooping like that?' They raised it to the level of their waists, and progression became seemly. "'There you are,' said Sabre. There was somehow a feeling at both ends of the bookcase having been caught. Sabre liked this room. Three latticed windows in the same wall looked out to the garden. In the spaces between them, and in the two spaces between the end windows and the end walls, he placed his bookshelves, a set of shelves in each space. Mabel displayed no interest in the move, nor made any reference to it at tea-time. In the evening, hearing her pass the door on her way to dress for dinner, he called her in. He was in his shirt-sleeves, arranging the books. "'There you are. Not bad.' She regarded them in the room. "'They look all right. All the same, I must say it seems rather funny you using your bedroom for things when you've got a room downstairs.' Oh, well, I never liked that room, you know. I hardly ever go into it. 
I know you don't. And she went off. But the significance of the removal rested not in the definite relinquishment of the den, but in her words, using your bedroom. The definite recognition of separate rooms. And neither commented upon it. After all, landmarks in the course of a journey are more frequently observed and noted as landmarks when looking back along the journey than when actually passing them. They belong generically to the past tense. One rarely says, this is a landmark. Usually, that was a landmark. The bookcases were of Sabre's own design. He was extraordinarily fond of his books, and he had ideas about their arrangement. The lowest shelf was in each case three feet from the ground. He hated books being down where you can't see them. Also, the cases were open, without glass doors. He hated having to fiddle to get a book out. He liked them to be at the right height and straight to his hand. In a way, he could not quite describe. He was a bad talker, framing his ideas with difficulty. He was attached to his books, not only for what was in them, but as entities. He had written once in a manuscript book in which he sometimes wrote things. I like the feel of them, and I know the feel of them in the same way as one likes and knows the feel of a friend's hand, and I can look at them and read them without opening them in the same way as without his speaking. One looks at it and can enjoy the face of a friend. I feel towards them when I look at them in the shelves, well, as if they're feeling towards me just as I am feeling towards them. And he added this touch, which is perhaps more illuminating. The other day someone had had out one of my books and returned it upside down. I swear it was as grotesque and painful to me to see it upside down as if I had come into the room and found my brother standing on his head against the wall, fastened there. At least I couldn't have sprung to him and release him any quicker than I did to the book to upright it. The first book he had ever bought, especially, that is to say not as one buys a bun, but as one buys a dog was at the age of seventeen when he had bought a Byron. The complete works in a popular edition of very great bulk and very small print. He bought it partly because of what he had heard during his last term at school of Don Juan. Partly because he had picked up the idea that it was rather a fine thing to read poetry, and he kept it and read it in great secrecy because his mother, to whom he had mentioned his intention, told him that Byron ought not be read, and that her father, in her girlhood, had picked up Byron with the tongs and burnt him in the garden. This finally determined him to buy Byron. He began to read it precisely as he was accustomed to read books, that is to say, at the beginning, and thence steadily onwards. On the death of a young lady, Admiral Parker's daughter explained a footnote, to E, to D, and so on, there were seven hundred and eight pages of this kind of thing, and Don Juan was at the end in the five hundreds. When he had laboriously read thirty-six pages, he decided that it was not a fine thing to read poetry, and he moved on to Don Juan, page five hundred and thirty-three. The rhymes surprised him. He had no idea that poetry, poetry rhymed annuities with true it is and Jew it is. He turned on and numbered the cantos, sixteen, and then the number of verses in each canto and the total, two thousand one hundred and eighty. Whoa! It was endless as the seven hundred and eight pages had appeared when he had staggered as far as page thirty-six. 
He began to hunt for the particular verses which had caused Don Juan to be recommended to him, and presumably had caused his grandfather to carry out Byron with the tongs and burn him in the garden. He could not find them. He chucked the rotten thing. But as he was putting the rotten thing away, his eye happened upon two lines that struck into him. It was like a physical blow, the most extraordinary sensation. THE ISLES OF GREECE THE ISLES OF GREECE WHERE BURNING SAPPHO LOVED AND SUNG. HE CAUGHT HIS BREATH. IT WAS EXTRAORDINARY. WHAT THE DICKENS WAS IT? A VISION OF EXQUISITE AND UNEARTHLY AND BRILLIANTLY COLORED BEAUTY SEEMED TO BE BEFORE HIS EYES. ISLANDS, ALL WHITE AND GREEN AND IN A SEA OF TERRIFIC BLUE. AND MUSIC, THE THIN NOTE OF DISTANT TRUMPETS. AMAZING. He read on, where Delos rose and Phoebus sprung. Eternal summer gilds them yet. Terrific, but not quite so terrific. And then again the terrific, the stunning, the heart-clutching thing. On a different note, with a different picture, colored in grays. The mountains look on Marathon, and Marathon looks on the sea. Music! The trumpets thinned away, exquisitely thin, tiny, gone and high above the mountains, and far upon the sea, an organ shook. He said, Well, I'm dashed, and put the book away. It was years after the Byron episode, after he had come down from Cambridge, after he had traveled fairly widely, and luckily, as tutor to a delicate boy, and after he had settled down from his father's house at Chovensbury to learn the fortune, east, and sabre business, that he began to collect books on which now formed his collection. His intense fondness for books had come to him late in life, as love of literature goes. He was reading at twenty-eight and thirty literature which, when it is read at all, is as a rule read ten years younger, because the taste is there, and is voracious for satisfaction, as a young and vigorous animal for its meals. But at twenty-eight and thirty, reading for the first time, he read sometimes with a sense of revelation, always with an enormous satisfaction, especially the poets. And constantly in the poets he was coming across passages, the sheer beauty of which shook him precisely as the Byron lines had first shaken him. His books appeared to indicate a fair number and a fair diversity of interests, but their diversity presented to him a common quality or group of qualities, some history, some sociology, some Spencer, some Huxley, some Haeckel, a small textbook of geology, a considerable proportion of pure literature, Morley's edition of Lives of Literary Men, the English essayists in a nice set, Shakespeare in many forms, and so much poetry that at a glance at his library it was all poetry. All the books were picked up at second-hand dealers in Tidborough. None had cost more than a few shillings. The common quality that bound them was that they stirred in him imaginative thought. They presented images, they suggested causes, they revealed processes. The common group of qualities to which they ministered were beauty and mystery, sensibility and wonder. They made him think about things, and he liked thinking about things. The poets filled his mind with beauty, and he was strangely stirred by beauty. Here in the effect upon him of beauty and ideas communicated to his mind by his reading, first manifest to him by the Byron revelation, was the mark and label of his individuality, 
Here was the linking up of a boy who, as Puzzlehead Sabre, would wrinkle up his nut and say, "'Well, I can't quite see that, sir,' with the man in whom the same habit persisted. He saw much more clearly, and infinitely more intensely with his mind than with his eye. Beauty of place imagined was to him infinitely more vivid than beauty seen. And so in all affairs, it was not what the eye saw or the ear heard that interested him. It was what his mind saw, questing behind the scene and behind the speech that interested him, and often, by the intensity of its perception, shook him. And precisely as beauty touched him in the most exquisite and poignant depths, so evil surroundings, evil faces dismayed him to the point of mysterious fear, almost terror. On a Sunday of his honeymoon in London, he had conceived with Mabel the idea of a bus ride through the streets. Anywhere the first bus that comes. The first bus that came took them through South London, dodged between main roads, and took them through miles of mean and sordid dwelling houses. At open windows high up sat solitary women. At others, solitary shirt-sleeved men. Behind closed doors were the faces of children, all staring. Women and men and children, impassively prisoned, impassively staring. Each house door presented, one above the other, five or six iron bell knobs, some hanging out and downwards as if their necks were broken. On the pavements hardly a soul. Just upon the street of these awful houses with their imprisoned occupants and the doors with their string of crazy bells. An appalling and abysmal depression settled upon Sabre. He imagined himself pulling the dislocated neck of one of those bells and stepping into what festered behind those sinister doors, the dark and malodorous stairways, the dark and malodorous rooms, their prisoned occupants opening their prisons and staring at him. Those men, those women, those children. He imagined himself in one of those rooms, saw it, felt it, smelt it. He imagined himself cutting his throat in one of those rooms. At tea in their hotel on their return, Mabel chattered animatedly on all she had seen. I'm awfully glad we went. I think it's a very good thing to know for oneself just how that side of life lives. Those awful people at the windows. And she laughed. He noticed for the first time what a sudden laugh she had. Rather loud. Sabre agreed. Yes, I think it's a good thing to have an idea of their lives. I can't say I'm glad I went, though. You have no idea how awfully depressed that kind of thing makes me feel. She laughed again. Depressed? However can it? How funny you must be! Then she said, Yes, I'm glad I've seen for myself. You know, when those sort of people come into your service, the airs they give themselves, and the way they demand the best of everything. And then when you see the kind of homes they come from, Yes, it makes you think, doesn't it? It does. But what it made Sabre think was entirely different from what it made Mabel think. Puzzlehead, they had called him at his preparatory school, old Puzzlehead Sabre, the chap who always wrinkled up his nut over things and came out with the most extraordinary ideas. He had remained and increasingly become the puzzler. And precisely as he ceased to share a room with Mabel and carried himself with satisfaction to his own apartment, so by his fifth year of his married life he had come to know well that he shared no thoughts with her. 
he carried them with increasing absorption in their own interest to the processes of his own mind an incident of those early school days had always remained with him in its exact words the exact words of a selectly famous professor of philosophy who living the few years of his retirement in the neighborhood of the preparatory school had given for pure love of seeing things and feeling the freshness of young minds a weekly talk on things to the small schoolboys and whatever the subject of his talk he almost invariably would work off his familiar counsel and a very good thing he used to say an excellent thing the very best of practices is to write a little every day just a little scrap but cultivate the habit of doing it every day i don't mean what is called keeping a diary you know don't write what you do there's no benefit in that we do things for all kinds of reasons and it's the reasons not the things that matter let your little daily scrap be something you've thought what you've done belongs partly to someone else often you're made to do it but what you think is you yourself you write it down and there it is a little tiny bit of you that you can look at and say well really you see a little bit like that written every day is a mirror which you can see your real self and correct your real self a looking-glass shows you your face is dirty or your hair rumpled and you go and polish up but it's ever so much more important to have a mirror that shows you how your real self your mind your spirit is looking and his small hearers desiring like colts in a field nothing so little as anything steadying paid as much attention to this jaw as to any precept not supported by cane or imposition they made of it indeed a popular school joke oh go on and write a little every day and boil yourself you ass but it appealed dimly to the reflective quality in child saber's mind he contracted the habit of writing in a bagged exercise book sentences laboriously with i thought today it remained with him as he grew up in the practice of writing sometimes ideas that occurred to him as in the case of his feelings about his books and much more strongly in deliberately thinking about ideas you yourself the real you in the increasing solitariness of his married life it came to be something into which he could retire as into a private chamber which he could put on as a garment and in the privacy of the chamber or within the sleeves of the garment he received a sense of detachment from normal life in which vaguely he pondered things end of chapter two recording by kirk ziegler ogden utah voiceover-solutions.com